Welcome to Heritage Talks Waha Putonga 2023. This series of talks are given by experts in the field and provide valuable insight into our histories and our cultures. Today's talk, The Jazz Age in Tamaki Makuro, explores the jazz scene in Auckland during the 1920s. Follow Dr. Alicia Ward as she takes us on a virtual tour of some of Auckland's jazz venues while delving into the history of the bands, audiences and scandals that characterised this era. Good afternoon everyone. So, by 1923 the Jazz Age was in full swing in Tamaki Makoro, Auckland, with a variety of venues to listen and dance to jazz. From the Dixieland to Trades Hall, Conservatoire to Click Clack Cabaret, today I'm going to take you on a digital walking tour of some of the many venues of, uh, for jazz during what I call the Long Jazz Age. This is the period 1918 to 1935. So let's begin downtown with two iconic radio stations. Station 1YA actually began its life on Queen Street in 1921. The exact location is unknown, and it wasn't until it wasn't known rather in, as 1YA until it was officially licensed on May 2, 1923, by which point it was being broadcast from Scotts Hall on Upper Simon Street. 1YA was the first significant radio station in the city, and it was a base for the city's musicians to broadcast music. In its early years, it was also rather notorious for its pay-to-play operation, which once resulted in the repeat broadcast of the song, Yes, We Have No Bananas, over several hours in one day, prompting complaints by the listeners. So if we can just go to that recording. As you can see, it's almost three minutes long and it just repeats that over and over. So you can see why people were using that newfangled thing, the telephone, to call in and complain about, can we have something different, please? Anything, just not, yes, we have no bananas, again. However, by 1925 and after some government regulation, it standardised its practices and broadcast a variety of in-studio and uh, in-studio bands, rather, and records. 
Jazz bands, however, were almost always relay broadcasts from dance venues such as Trades Hall, the Parisian Dance Club on Simon Street, or the Dixieland, rather than being broadcast in studio. Oh, there we go. The exquisite Shortland Street building, as you can see here in the slide, was a later addition to this station's existence. It was built and opened in 1934. The transmitter on the top of the building was one of the more powerful in the country, and it allowed the station to be heard as far south as Otago. This iconic building would later become the home of TVNZ in the 1960s. But in the 1930s, it broadcast a mix of recorded and live jazz, the latter still being more relay broadcast than in studio, at least until World War II, but that's a different presentation. This leads us now directly down the hill and up Queen Street to the 1ZB station at Broadcasting House on Durham Street West. I'll pause it here. This is from 1941, so rather after um, our time period. However, this is such a glorious building, um, and you can go to Audio Culture, and there is a beautiful article there with so many wonderful photographs of 1ZB. A lot of them are from the Auckland Heritage Collections. So the B stations were created in 1925, with 1ZB being established in 1926. Initially operating out of the La Gloria Gramophone Company premises at 157K Road on... Um, Sorry, on 150, at 157 Karanga Happy Road. In 1933, the license was transferred to Colin Scrimmager and Tom Garland. Some of you in the audience may know them better as Uncle Scrim and Uncle Tom, to become the home base of the Friendly Road Evangelical Ministry, which, if you're not familiar with this, was a radio-based um, Christian ministry that was very popular in New Zealand in the 1930s. By this point, the station was based at Queen's Arcade on Queen Street, but it seems to have moved again at some point before the building of Broadcasting House, which was just opposite His Majesty's Theatre and His Majesty's Arcade on Durham Street. And this, um, the 1ZB Broadcasting House building opened on October 6, 1941. In 1933, the B stations became a quote-unquote commercial alternative to the YA stations, with the government allowing company sponsorship of programs. This commerciality allowed for more music to be broadcast, and by the late 1930s, the B stations became known for their in-studio bands of all genres, and 1ZB had at least two jazz bands on the payroll. They also broadcast a lot of recordings and relay broadcasts from venues such as the Peter Pan Cabaret. In the late 1920s and 1930s, 1ZB was the main rival for 1YA for jazz on radio in New Auckland. Jazz was the popular music of the day, and despite the desires of government officials to limit how much jazz was on the radio, at ground level, the station personnel knew that the listeners actually really wanted a good measure of jazz in amongst all their other musics. Stations would broadcast some jazz from record, but again, most of the local jazz content was live. 
Both 1YA and 1ZB would try to one-up each other um, and headhunt bands from each other to gain ascendancy amongst jazz fans, with both in-studio performances and relay broadcasts from outside venues. Where YA might relay um, broadcast Epi Shelfoon and his Melody Boys from the Crystal Palace, the same night ZB might relay Laurie Paddy and his orchestra from the Peter Pan Cabaret. They also tried to one-up each other with touring bands. While YA had Sammy Lee and his world-famous Americanadians performing in studio, ZB had Theo Walters' personality band, who became the house band for 1ZB at opening in 1941. We now turn our attention to the many theatres that have dotted Queen Street. His Majesty's Theatre, Fuller's Opera House, AKA the Auckland Opera House, the Civic and St. James Theatres were all venues for jazz on the vaudevillian and review stage. His Majesty's Theatre was situated inside His Majesty's Arcade on the corner of Durham Street West and Queen Street. And it played host to the first truly big international jazz band tour in December 1924. Bert Ralton and his world-famous Savoy Havana band from the Savoy Hotel in London, who were a favourite of the Prince of Wales. They appeared in New Zealand initially on the J.C. Williamson vaudeville circuit, performing in theatres in Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. They opened at His Majesty's on December 6, 1924, remaining there for two weeks before touring the rest of the country. To say that they were a hit with audiences would be an understatement. The reception from the press was glowing, with reviewers on bo in both the Auckland Star and New Zealand Herald trying to outdo each other with superlatives, calling the band the world's greatest jazz band and stating that Ralton was truly the most musical of all dance band leaders. Ralton and the band would return to Auckland before they left New Zealand in March 1925 to perform independently at the Strand Theatre at 241 Queen Street. And they concluded their tour by um, playing a dance at the Dixieland Cabaret on Queen Street on March 3rd. The band is also significant because they were the first band to include a Māori waiata in a jazz recording. Pokare Kariana appears on their 1925 record Māori Hula Medley. This is a fascinating artefact because it indicates that at some point in that 10-week tour, Ralton was taught not only the melody, well enough that it could be arranged um, from its traditional waltz interpretation to a foxtrot, this is musically shifting it from 3-4 to 4-4, but was also taught the proper pronunciation of the lyrics. And while it's not perfect by today's standards, it was certainly an impressive feat by an Englishman of the 1920s. So let's see if we can get this to play. Here we go. We get the volume up a little bit. Oh, 
jazz did mean foxtrot primarily as the main dance in relation to the music so everything was a foxtrot in the 1920s even pieces of music that were not originally foxtrots moving up Queen Street now to the corner of Wellesley Street and Elliott Street where the back half of Smith and Coe's is now we find Auckland's Opera House by the 1920s, it was owned by Fuller's Entertainment Company. Yes, as in the fairies, by the way. It is that same company. And it was famed for its vaudevillian entertainment, which included a good number of staged jazz bands that incorporated comedy and dancing as well as music into their acts. Um, these are acts such as the Versatile Three, or Lynn Smith's Royal Jazz Band from Australia. Lynn Smith's band was touted as the first real jazz band to perform on Auckland stages when it appeared on the Opera House stage in 1923. Press surrounding their appearances touted them as playing, quote, the real thing, stimulating, seductive jazz, end quote. And there are also mentions in the press about how close they sounded to American jazz bands of the day, though unfortunately there are no surviving recordings of this band. According to New Zealand saxophonist Abe Romain, who was a member of the band in the late 1920s, their act was developed around a loop score. This is a descriptive score that had um, sequences of short musical selections that could be reorganized at will during the course of a performance. Because of the use of such a score and the infrequency of change amongst personnel, um, the Smith musicians were able over time to add embellishments to the arrangements and to hone and, and perfect their improvisations, quote unquote, within the act. So this is not collective improvisation where it's just everyone doing their own thing. There are very specific rules about how you put these things together, and this is how they could make it sound like um, they were collectively improvising, but still melodic. The band was enormously popular with Auckland audiences and made a lasting impact on both audience and incipient jazz musicians. Now, jumping across Queen Street to the St. James Theatre. It only exists because the Opera House burned down in December 1926. After the fire, Fuller's decided to purchase a site on Queen Street, abutting Lawn Street, just outside here, um, for a new theatre, and work commenced on the site in August 1927. The theatre opened on July 5, 1928. As with His Majesty's and the Opera House, jazz in the early years of the St. James came through vaudeville and review shows. And we have another appearance of the Lynn Smith Royal Jazz Band in the Fuller's League of Notions review in August 1928. Another well-known vaudeville jazz band, the, Char the Charleston Six Symphonists, say that 10 times fast, 
performed with the Will of Mirth Review Company that was run by American comedian George Ward, no relation to me, in November, December 1928. Um, obviously, since that period in time, the St. James has also played host to bands such as the Artie Shaw Band in 1943, Miles Davis in uh, 1970. Seven, I believe, and also his final um, concert in New Zealand in 1990, just before his death. The last of the Central City Theatres to be constructed was, of course, the mighty Civic on the corner of Wellesley and Queen Street, opening in December 1929 at the dawn of the Great Depression. It differed from these other um, theatres uh, in that it also housed a cabaret. The Winter Garden, and the house band for the cabaret was a unit within the full theatre orchestra. It also differed in that it was designed and operated both as a live stage theatre and as a movie theatre from its opening. Um, most of the theatres that pre-exist from this time, film comes later. So this was actually not only film, but it was designed for sound on film film as well. So it's very cutting edge. This combination of theatre and cabaret enticed patrons to linger at the theatre and to dance to the band that they had heard playing. And of course, some of you will be familiar with the sinking orchestra pit, which would go down from the theatre level down into the winter garden. And you could literally follow the sound of the band from the theatre down into the Winter Garden as they made their descent. For the first, first, uh, first 18 months of the theatre, the cabaret band was led by Australian-based American Ted Hinkle and featured both Australian and New Zealand musicians, including Ted Chips Healy on saxophone. After Henkel left the Civic, Healy took over the um, leadership of the Civic Band, leading it on and off for nearly 20 years. And this is a photo of them, actually, I believe, in the actual Winter Garden. So you can sort of see the stage above there. You can see the curtains, just, and they're just like sinking down into the Winter Garden there. Um, and he led, he led them on and off for 20 years, um, and this is from the late 1930s. The Civic Winter Garden was one of the most popular jazz-related entertainment venues of the 1930s, and continued its popularity in World War II, in particular during the residency of the US forces in Auckland, 1942 to 1944. And again, the Artie Shaw Band played here as well. So in fact, the Artie Shaw Band played St. James, the Civic, and the Town Hall um, throughout their tour here. Moving onwards to dance venues now. And we turn our attention to some, just a few of the many examples of dance venues that I could give you in the CBD and inner suburbs. And yeah, we're starting off our journey with the town hall. Because yes, the town hall was a prominent jazz venue in the early 1920s. The Town Hall hosted a series of jazz cabarets in December and early January 1920-1921 under the direction of dancer Theo Trezise. 
Bob Adams Jazz Band, the first jazz band to be established not only here in Auckland but in New Zealand. And uh, they were assisted by Walter Smith's Hawaiian Guitar Band, who despite their name were actually a cross-genre dance band. Um, performed for revelers during Christmas and New Year cabarets. Um, so the Bob Adams Jazz Band played the main sets for the dancing. Walter Smith's band played what were called the special items. And these were just breaks between the main sets. So the main set of a dance band might be 45 minutes to an hour, and then they'll have a 15-minute break, at which point there will be the special items. Um, uh, in, a, in a cabaret sense, this is when other performers come on. Um, in a dance hall sense, uh, the special items are generally a band backing a vocalist and, and the dancing still continues. So cabarets were unknown in Aotearoa in 1920, and this is a brand new style of entertainment. So bringing it here was very novel, it was a new form of entertainment that mixed dancing with dining and watching performances uh, by dancers, singers, and comedians. Now, of course, the jazz cabarets provoked disgust and moral panic among some sections of the community. In particular, the one held on Christmas Eve, which would encroach past midnight into Christmas Day. This particularly offended the concerned citizens of the city. As you can see here from these letters to the editor, however, other citizens responded to this panic with irony, amusement, and pragmatism, noting that the disgusted citizens seemed to find the boxing matches hosted at the town hall fine entertainment. Uh, so you can see these are all from the New Zealand Herald if you want to look them up on Papers Past and have a good read of them. I know it's hard to read on the screen here. They're quite amusing, actually. And um, some people even went so far as to take out adverts mocking disgusted parent um, and uh, the other um, letters to the editor uh, writers of that ilk. So there is a direct response under the town hall um, jazz cabaret advert there. Um, and this one, this is particularly interesting. This is a real estate agent's advert saying, you think that jazz cabarets are scandalous? Move to the suburbs. You won't find any jazz cabarets out here. <laughs> in this case, they're talking about Rimiwera. So in the 1920s, Rimiwera really was suburbs almost um, uh, still a rural area. So despite the moral panic, the jazz cabarets at the town hall appear to have been a great success with sellout crowds who were delighted in this new form of entertainment. Let's move up the hill now over to Hobson Street and Trades Hall. So society and organization halls, including church halls, were very popular venues for jazz during the jazz age. Trades Hall at 157 Hobson Street was the social home to um, many uh, the many various trade unions that were based here in the city. And the, this is emblematic of uh, the many organisation and society halls that hosted dancers, 
public or private, six and seven nights a week. So yes, there were dances on Sunday nights. Um, Trades Hall was one of the first society halls to include jazz and jazzing on their dances um, advertising and to also embrace jazz as the latest music and dance style. Trades Hall and other halls offered venues um, for incipient jazz musicians uh, to try playing jazz in public. Uh, and um, many bands found regular employment playing dances in these halls. While the sophisticated cabarets got more press attention, and thus the bands performing in those cabarets also got more attention, the society dance halls were many, were many musicians' bread and butter employment. Despite the idea that New Zealand closed at five and that there was no nightlife, there were dances, as I said, every night of the week. Um, there was also theatre until 1am. There were supper clubs that remained open until 2 or 3am at this point in time. So yeah, we had a nightlife. We had quite a nightlife, in fact. Musicians playing at these types of gigs um, would have a steady roster of gigs, being able to play multiple dances a week. So even if they weren't um, employed as a theatre or a cabaret musician, there was a good chance that they would be able to be a performing musician and earn their living as a performing musician only. These venues were also often the main venue for young people in the 1920s to encounter live jazz for the first time because the prices for these society halls were considerably cheaper than cabarets such as the Dixieland, the Peter Pan or the Civic Winter Garden. The music of this period in time is really anything and everything. Obviously, yes, we had no bananas. That was a jazz hit. Um, but jazz in the 1920s was not just a noun, it's not just a genre, but it was also an adjective. Um, so you describe something as being jazz or jazzy, and it's a verb to jazz. You jazzed music, you jazz danced. Um, jazzing is you know, what you would call jazz dancing. So any music could become jazz. You took any piece of music, you applied jazz effects. And this is things like the talking mutes, um, playing instruments in weird ways, um, using unusual percussion like tin cans, trash can lids, the metal trash can lids, gongs, um, tapping on the ends of music stands, uh, things like that. So there was no set repertoire at this point in time. The music came from anywhere and everywhere. It came from vaudeville, it came from musicals, it came from classical music. There are a lot of jazzed classics in this period of time. If you ever wanted to consider Beethoven's well-tempered clavier in a jazz context, you could probably find that in the 1920s. So moving back down to Queen Street now, um, we come to two of the best-known cabarets in Auckland during this long jazz age, the Dixieland Cabaret Deluxe and the Peter Pan Cabaret. And we're going to begin on Queen Street with the earlier venue to open, Dixieland. So as I've written at Audio Culture, and the link is there if you want to look it up on your computers later, 
The Dixieland Cabaret Deluxe opened on 11th of April 1922 at 438 Queen Street. For some of us who recalled this vintage um, a while ago, um, Real Groovy used to be there for many, many years. Now it's, it's not been there for 10 years, so I can't use that reference to young people anymore because they don't know what I'm talking about. The owners, Dr. Dr. Frederick Rayner and his heiress wife, Ethel, um, spared no expense to create the most luxurious jazz venue. With a 3,000 square foot dance floor and a luxurious mezzanine lounge area, which you can actually see in the photo down here. Um, and this was for chaperones, who became increasingly um, rare as the 1920s wore on and young women went out to dances by themselves without a chaperone. The first house band, um, sorry, it was actually also the first dedicated jazz venue in the city. So it was uh, advertised as a venue specifically for jazz. No other dance styles, just jazz-related dance styles. The first house band was imported from Australia, as the Rainers and the venue manager, Del Foster, were unsure whether any of the local bands would be up for the gig. And that is Arthur Frost's Southern Dixieland Band that you can see on the slide here. From mid-1923, however, the house band comprised mostly um, New Zealand musicians, and it was mostly under the direction of local musicians as well. This move implies that the management of the Dixieland thought that New Zealand jazz musicians were now of a standard to perform there. According to trumpeter Vern Wilson, who played in many of the Dixieland's bands, including as a replacement in the Southern Dixieland band, the Dixieland really helped popularise and normalise jazz as a popular music and dance style in Auckland. And I will draw your attention to um, the Dixieland Internationals and the banjo player there. That is Clyde Howley, and we will come back to him later. The Dixieland also expanded jazz activities into the daytime with tea dances, the te dansant, they were always called, and dancing lessons held three to four afternoons a week with records rather than a live band playing for the music. This was considered a good way to learn or polish the latest dance trends for dancing in the evening. Though obviously this was also an activity that was marketed to those who did not have to work full time and had free time in the afternoon. In 1925, the Dixieland outgrew its Queen Street venue and moved to Point Chevalier in October. Located just metres from the beach, the Rainers expanded the business again into tea rooms and facilities for sea bathing, which you can see here in this photo. The sea bathing facilities, by the way, could accommodate 700 people. So it's not a small little ocean pool, it's quite a sizeable ocean pool. They also increased the size of the cabaret. The dance floor was increased to 3,600 feet and could accommodate 600 patrons. Moving to the suburbs was a risky move for the cabaret, but the management ran a free shuttle to and from the CBD, with the last shuttle returning to the CBD in time to catch the last trams of the night. So this is around midnight, 1 a.m., depending on the night. 
The new cabaret had, quote, an uninterrupted view, end quote, of the harbour, according to the initial reviews in the Herald and Auckland Star. And as it opened out onto the shore, the sea, breeze, sea breezes made it considerably cooler than its previous city location. This, the reviewers felt, was more in keeping with American and European resort practices and made the cabaret even more fashionable. Now, during the 1920s and 30s, cabarets and other dance venues, um, such as the Dixieland, were supposed to be dry, i.e. no alcohol allowed to be served. However, many venues, uh, including the Dixieland, bent and frequently broke this law to give customers what they wanted. The Dixieland was, in fact, one of the more infamous venues, repeatedly being cited for ignoring and even aiding patrons in bringing alcohol onto the premises. Although the management appeared to have obeyed the letter of the law in not serving or selling alcohol on the premises, they had glasses that the patrons could rent for a small fee for the evening. So you could BYO your drinks. Such flouting of the law attracted the attention of the courts and the tabloid New Zealand Truth. And in 1926, Frederick Raynor and the management of the Dixieland were called to appear before a magistrate regarding the repeated breaches of the liquor laws. New Zealand Truth decided to supplement their reporting of this case with their own investigation of, into the activities of Auckland's smart set attending the Dixieland. To their shock, quote-unquote, they found that not only were patrons imbibing alcohol, they were also cuddling in the cabaret's private cubicles. The result was an almost page-long article detailing the debauchery of the patrons and the repeated breaches by the management. The salaciousness of the article no doubt engendered a great deal of tutting among Auckland's conservative elements. However, it didn't harm the Dixieland in the slightest. In fact, the article and the court case probably made it much more attractive to bright young things looking for a wild night out. For the next dec decade, the Dixieland thrived in Point Chevalier until tragedy struck in the early hours of, the, of 9th September 1935, when a lit cigarette dropped accidentally onto a lounge cushion and sparked a fire that completely destroyed the cabaret, including the band's instruments that had been left at the cabaret because they closed at 2 a.m., so they weren't going to take their um, uh, instruments home. They were going to come and collect them the next day, or in the morning, I should say. It was barely contained from the neighbouring residences and there was absolutely no way that the fire service were able to save any of it. Returning now to the CBD and just across the road here to the Peter Pan Cabaret at the corner of Rutland and Lawn Street in the Campbell's buildings, which I see have actually just been demolished except for the facade. The Peter Pan Cabaret was opened on August 21, 1930, um, in the Campbell's buildings, as I just mentioned. This would be the first large standalone cabaret, unlike the Civic Winter Garden, to be opened in the central city since the Dixieland Cabaret moved from Queen Street in 1925. 
One of the Peter Pan's unique features on opening was the bandstand, which was originally situated in the middle of the dance floor so that there would be a uniform volume of sound. So it was a circular dance, um, a circular bandstand, literally in the middle of the dance floor. However, this didn't last long because it's a bit impractical, particularly for the musicians, let alone the dancers trying to go around the bandstand. So it was relocated um, quite quickly to one end of the dance floor in a rather more normal configuration. The cabaret quickly became popular on the Auckland scene and gained a reputation for having excellent dance bands, whose personnel were the best musicians in Auckland. Among musicians, this, band, uh, sorry, this cabaret job was considered an incredible job, not just in reputation terms, but financially, as the managers wanted steady bands to play long residences. And they were willing to pay much better than the union rate to get the top caliber musicians. Additionally, the regular relay broadcasts on 1ZM, sorry, 1ZB, not 1ZM, um, that helped promote the venue and the house band across the country. The Peter Pan had a long life in two locations, this location until 1952, and then from 1952 to 1978 on Queen Street, up uh, just opposite the Baptist Tabernacle near K Road. It took over from the Metropole Cabaret, um, and it would go on to become the Main Street Cabaret in 1978. So anyone here who is a 1980s rock fan will have heard of Main Street. There's actually very little AV ephemera of any of these venues from the 20s and 30s. Um, however, the Peter Pan featured momentarily in a national film unit film on electricity in 1947, where we see the Art Rosamond Band in action, and this gives us a very small look at the interior. So if we can just click out to that. An occasional taxi still takes a late call. An electric engine pulls out on a long night haul. And now the last lights on are the lights shining softly in a cabaret as the couples turn to the rhythm of the last dance in the early hours of the morning. So they're, they're, they're just walking down the hill, just as you can see in the photo here. So the, the entrance is about halfway up the hill, and so they're clearly walking down towards um, uh, this area of Lawn Street. They're probably going to turn on to Queen Street to get the last tram home. And let's just move past. There we go. Moving uptown now to Karangahapi Road and Rush Munro's Conservatoire de Danse, which opened in July 1921, opposite the Newton Post Office, um, around 
3333 um, uh, K Road. The problem with a lot of these um, uh, addresses is that frequently the adverts will describe them as being opposite something. So Scott's Hall is opposite something else, or it's next door to the Lyric. Conservatoire de Dance, opposite the Newton Post Office, but we don't ever see an actual physical address noted, so no numbers ever appear on these adverts. By 1921, Rush Munro operated several tea and supper rooms around Auckland. And though he had yet to start his ice cream empire, so yes, this is Rush Munro of Rush Munro's ice cream, um, he, um, he was experimenting with ice creams and he had his ice creams in his tea rooms. The Conservatoire was billed as Auckland's first cabaret, though it does not have appeared, it does not appear to have operated precisely as a cabaret. It certainly had dancing and served meals, but it does not appear to have had floor shows. In early 1922, Munro changed the venue's name to Rush Munro's Cabaret, and the venue seems to have operated until 1928 or 1929. It was the venue for some of the earliest jazz bands in Auckland, including the Bob Adams Jazz Band, who played at the Auckland Town Hall for the jazz cabarets, and also Edgar Bendel's Collegians, as well as Walter Smith's Aloha Jazz Band. The Conservatoire was never a rival to the Dixieland, but it certainly held its um, own as a premier uptown venue. Moving across the gully now to the Orange Coronation Ballroom, aka the Orange Coronation Hall, aka the Orange, at 142-147 at Newton Road. Built by the Protestant Orange Lodge in 1922 and opening in 19, uh, June 9, 1923, the hall somewhat surprisingly became most, one of the most popular jazz and later rock and roll venues in the uptown area. Now, I say surprisingly because the lodge had incredibly strict rules for the dance organisers, um, to the point that you would think that this would influence patrons to go elsewhere. However, many bands over the years would prove so popular with Auckland dancers that there were queues up and down the hill and around the corner onto Simon Street to get in, often hour-long queues. The hall operated on a first-come, first-serve model, and many organisations, societies and band leaders vied for the evening booking. Only a few, such as Ted Crowd, who ran dances there from 1934 to 1955, as you can see here in the slide, managed to convince the board to give them a regular gig. The other person that managed to do that was Bill Savesi in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, he was on a week-by-week -week contract, however, and um, this could cease at any time. At any point, the board could go, no, you're not having the hall this week. In the 1920s, it's hard to say exactly which bands were performing here, as the advertising for the various dancers generally don't mention a band name. This might mean that the organisers of even regular dancers didn't necessarily know at the time of advertising which band they might be able to get to play. <laughs> However, it is known that Walter Smith and Bob Adams jazz bands both played there on a semi-regular basis, as did Jackson's Jazz Orchestra, Shortland's Jazz Orchestra, the Boston Jazz Band, and of course, from the 1930s, the Ted Crowd Band. 
So I'm just going to point out a couple of things here. So the, the picture on the left here is of the refurbished hall. Actually, I'll just take it back a slide. So we have the original hall with the annex. This is um, on the right here. You have the redone hall um, with the apartments built around it now. So that was from 2016, I believe, that opened. So this is the refurbished hall. And where those... Um, uh, windows are are on um, the side street that it abuts, and that is where the bandstand was. So rather than at the head of the hall or the tail of the hall, the bandstand was along the side of the hall. Um, and you can see in the picture, um, in the Ted Crowd picture, the windows just at the top left there. So those are some of those windows in this other picture. So if it proved that you couldn't get into the orange or didn't want to wait an hour or more to do so, you could always wander across the road to St. Benedict's Church Hall or up the road to St. Sepp's, more formally the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, at the top of Kyber Pass on the corner of Burley Street. Or you could wander back down the gully to Druids Hall over on North Street, which is now Galatos Street, and the hall is better known these days as Galatos. All of these venues held public dances five to six nights a week, even the church halls. Moving onwards to Mount Eden now, and our next venue is the Crystal Palace Theatre and Winter Garden at 537 Mount Eden Road. The theatre opened on 29th of January 1929, and the Winter Garden opened on the 13th of April 1929. Unlike the Civic, where the theatre orchestra and cabaret bands were theatre employees, the Crystal Palace hired outside bands to perform as stage entertainment and for the dancing. And they also hired out the Winter Garden to a variety of organisations. Also, unlike other venues, the Winter Garden didn't open every evening. There were usually three public nights a week, with the others reserved for private events. Until 1935, the bands were many and varied, including Rex Savers' Seattle Six, the Mayfair Orchestra, Edgar Bendel's Collegians again, and Eric Doyle's Jazz Band. Uh, Eric Doyle was the husband of Elsie Nixon, who is one of the 1920s premier female jazz musicians. In 1935, Epi Chalfoon began his famed Saturday night residency at the venue, which would last until his death there, actually on the dance floor in 1953. By this point, Epi Chalfoon was one of the best-known jazz band leaders in the North Island. He had recently relocated from Rotorua to Auckland, and he is also responsible for the first wholly local jazz recording made on film in 1930, in order to advertise his band, which sadly is outside the scope of this lecture, but um, perhaps another time I can come back and talk about it. So we finally, on our digital walking tour, go over to Newmarket and the Click Clack Cabaret. The Click Clack Cabaret was located in the Rialto building above the theatre. So back in the day, in the 1920s, the Rialto cinemas were on the ground floor of the Rialto buildings and the cabaret was above. Unlike today, where the, there's the arcade down the bottom and the theatres, uh, the cinema up the top. 
It was opened on 16th August 1926 and had Ivan Perrin's dance orchestra providing the music. Initially, they operated only on Wednesday and Saturday afternoons and evenings. Uh, however, by November, the house band was Walter Smith's orchestra, the Click Clack Radio Band, um, and they would remain the house band until 1928, when there was a change in bands, and Clyde Howley's orchestra took over. So Clyde Howley, as I mentioned before, he's the banjo player from the Dixieland Internationals. He is also pop star Lord's great-great-grandfather. <laughs> So, uh, where am I now? Uh, within a couple of years of opening, the Click Clack was operating four to five nights a week and had a house band, the Click Clack Internationals, under the direction of various musicians, including Howley, um, uh, Walter Smith, Jack Riley, and Bob Adams. The Click Clack regularly featured in relay broadcasts on 1YA from 1927, hence the Click Clack radio band. In the 1930, early 1930s, there were several changes in management and eventually a name changed to the Rialto Ballroom in 1934. And they continued on as a premier dance and jazz venue in Newmarket until at least 1944. This concludes our digital walking tour of just a very few of the many jazz-related venues that were popular in Auckland during the jazz age. Now, as you've seen, many of these venues existed long past the jazz age, changing with the musical times and taste to continue being popular music and dance venues for Aucklanders. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's Heritage Talk. If you'd like to find out even more about the history of jazz New Zealand, you can head on over to Audio Culture Iwi Waiata, the noisy library of New Zealand music at audioculture.co.nz. Remember, you can also book to attend one of our upcoming talks by heading to our website at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and searching for events. Some of our previous talks can be found on our channels on YouTube and SoundCloud, and you can discover even more about our research and heritage collections by clicking on the Kura shortcut and the Heritage menu on our homepage. Until next time, mate wa.